Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, uh, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers and elders here at New Hope, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're going to be continuing a series called The Created You. And if you have a Bible, you can open it up or uh, turn your Bible app on. We're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. So John chapter 14. Uh, but I want to start um, a, a little bit different. Hey, happy Mother's Day. You're like, how do you respond? You can say thank you. Happy Mother's Day. There we go. But if, uh, if we're honest, Mother's Day is uh, really, really great for some and really, really difficult for others. Uh, and so we're in church. And one of the things the Bible teaches is that uh, the church is not this building. It doesn't ever address a building or a location as church. The Bible always addresses the people as the church. And so it would, we would call this the gathering, the gathering of the church. We're coming together uh, to focus on Jesus, to spend time in the presence of one another and of a holy God. And so one of the ways that we do that is we pray. We actually pause and we bring our attention and focus to God and we pray and we make requests for him. And I know that this morning uh, there's multiple different feelings on Mother's Day. You know, we've got a photo booth out here and you'll see people taking pictures and it's a lot of fun and it's good and we should be happy and we should celebrate and we should have joy. Uh, because of the impact of moms, both biological and spiritual, in our lives. The impact that women have had on our lives is tremendous and should be celebrated. But for many, Mother's Day is difficult, maybe because you've lost a child. And so the weight of that sits so heavy on your heart that days like this are bittersweet. Uh, because you've got maybe other children, but you're, you're missing someone. Others of us, uh, maybe we're longing to have children and, and not been able to. And so families that come to this special holiday it gets heavy and it's difficult. Or maybe, like me, you just miss your mom. Um, I just I miss her on days like this a lot. And I reflect on the impact she had on my life and I just miss her. So Mother's Day, while I get to watch my wife be a rock star mom, just incredible mom, I, I do miss my mom. And so to start out this morning, I just want to pray. And for some, it might feel a little awkward because I'm going to be quiet for a few moments. And it's going to feel awkward in here because it's going to be quiet, and that's okay. We've got to get better at that. But while we're quiet, I'm going to ask you to pray from where you're sitting. Pray from your heart. Pray silently in your seat and lift up a a prayer of celebration and joy for the moms in our lives. Lift up a prayer for peace for those who have a heavy day today. And after some silence where the church gathered together is praying to the Father, I'll close us out. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the, the moms in our lives, thankful for those who have had a tremendous impact on us and have shown us what a godly woman is, and for that we're so grateful. And Father, we know that for many this is a difficult day, and it can be painful and uh, can feel heavy on their heart and on their mind, and so my prayer is that you would bring a peace and a comfort that only you can bring that as the Spirit works in our lives to point us toward Jesus, that we would find him to be the author and perfecter of our faith, the one 
who gives peace in the midst of difficulty and pain, knowing that we will, we will find our peace and our strength in Jesus. And for those in Christ who've gone before us, we will meet again. God, we're thankful for days like this. I'm thankful to stop and celebrate how great godly women are and how much of an impact they make on our lives and in this world. A gift to be cherished. And for that, we're grateful. God, thank you for your, the gift. And thank you for the peace that you provide. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as we get started today, um, I've, I'm guessing that the, the moment of silence kind of felt a little bit awkward for some. It, it would for me, too. I, I'm guessing that uh, any time that you're living in the world that we live in today and you have moments like that where it can get quiet or moments where you're not easily being distracted or pulled, it can feel awkward and different, not because it's a bad thing, but because it's something we're not used to. I think many of you would agree that we live in one of the most connected generations in all of history. Raise your hand if you have a smartphone. See, years back, not that many hands. There's like 100% participation on that one. I see we're so connected. We have a connection to so many different things, and technology has blessed us in so many ways. So don't hear me uh, up here just bashing technology. That's not my goal. I mean, I think it's a huge blessing. It's a good thing. Many of you know we've hired Ryan King to be our student minister, and he'll be here in about a month. And Ryan right now is currently living in and working as a missionary in Haiti. A few years back, we may have missed the opportunity to even bring him on staff, but because there's an app, because, you know, making phone calls to Haiti wasn't always easy. It wasn't always something you could do, and you'd write a letter, but then you have to hire, and then we've got to fill this, and, and it got confusing. But now it's simply pick up your smartphone, go into a certain app, and through the Internet, make a phone call that he just picks up on the other end, and you're talking, and you're like, this is incredible, and this is great. You can do video meetings all around the world. You can stay connected to people in so many different ways. Technology is a blessing. But I think if we're honest, we'd have to say it's also had its negative impact as well. Because you watch how distracted people get, how pulled in so many different directions, how we can't stop and we can't sit still. If you're like me, every free moment you want to check something on the phone, whether it's an email or a text message or you're jumping on social media, which of course you're going to say, I don't, I don't go on social media that much. Yeah, you do. Okay? And, and we're all looking at different things and we're drawn in these different directions and it distracts us. And we're pulled. Now, here's the evidence of that. Like I can sit in a meeting... And it's hard to sit through an entire meeting without somebody having to respond to a text, take a phone call, write a quick email, or take a picture of the meeting that we're in so they can post it on their social media. It's like, come on. Like, ah, just be here. We have lost the ability to be present, to be in the moment, because we're either thinking about what's next, thinking about what's over here, thinking about what we have to do, and the fact that we can get to all of those things in that moment. We don't have to wait to start accomplishing these things. We just pick up our devices. And we get after it. And what happens is, I don't know about you, but I begin to feel even insulted when I'm sitting in a meeting and somebody, and we're supposed to be having a meeting and somebody's going to go ahead and take a call and just get up and nonchalantly walk out or, or they're not looking at you, they're just doing something. Or I'm having to constantly tell my kids, uh, keep eye contact when you talk to somebody. Now they're young and they still have to learn that, but I don't want them getting uh, older and getting a hold of the smartphone and never having learned to keep eye contact. There's not much else that's going to teach them to do so in the future. We are a generation of people that are getting disconnected and claiming to be the most connected. And I'm watching people that are quote-unquote connected to so many different people be desperate for meaningful friendship and relationship, and they don't have it. Because everything is over a device, or everything is connected digitally. And again, these are blessings, but if we're not careful, they can become a curse. Because you lose the ability to relate to other people 
in the moment. You lose the ability to be present in a meeting or in a moment to build in a relationship. And if you're not careful, the bigger that gap comes, the more it begins to infiltrate your relationship with God. And now all of a sudden, there's a distance between you and God because we're naturally people that drift. I don't know if you've noticed this. One day of not reading your Bible quickly becomes three, six, one week, three weeks, a month, and now there's a gap. And you wonder, how did I get there? How did that happen? Because we're so easily distracted. Because it's not distracted by silence, it's distracted by noise. Distracted by things that can pull us and take us anywhere we want to go. And when we're not careful, it really begins to impact our spiritual development and our spiritual lives. And now God becomes somebody that I connect with when I sit in a chair on a Sunday morning. And God becomes somebody I connect with maybe when I'm at a discipleship group or I go to a special Bible study or I'm listening to a certain podcast. Or maybe God is someone I connect with when I'm only doing my prayers before I go to bed at night. And now there's this gap. And God never intended to relate to you in periodic, spur-of-the-moment times. God wanted an intimate relationship with his people from the very beginning. See, God always, always wanted to connect to his people and have an intimate, real relationship with them. So they wouldn't be distracted, but recognize the gift of his presence and be present with him in the moment. Think about your Bible. Think with Adam and Eve, when he created the garden, what did God do? He walked in the coolness of the garden, present with Adam and Eve, having a great relationship with them. Later on, when God's people were scattered in the wilderness, God came and dwelled with them and led them with a pillar of cloud and fire. When the temple was built, God put his very presence in the temple because he wanted to get as close to his people as he could. He wanted a relationship with them. The Israelites even gave him the name Jehovah Shammah in Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35, which means the God who is there. And it's as if it wasn't enough. God wanted to get even closer. But sin and, and distraction were separating us from him. We were so sinful, and so he could only get so close and, and make his presence known among his people, and he wanted to be even closer, and so he sends Jesus. In fact, when Joseph is contemplating whether or not to divorce Mary because she got pregnant. He couldn't understand how. There's only one way he thought it was going to happen, so he's contemplating whether or not to divorce her, and the, the angel of the Lord visits him in a dream and says, hey, when, when Mary has this child, you need to name this child Jesus because it fulfills prophecy. And in Matthew 1.23, it says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now God was intimately connected to us in the person and life of Jesus. But man, it gets even better. And that's what we're going to study today because after Jesus left, he sent someone else. He sent what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit to come. And now it wasn't just that God was with us. He was much closer than that. Now God was in us. Not just around us, but the Bible teaches now God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, actually takes up residence in you, and he lives in your heart, and he has an impact on your life in a very intimate and real way. But for many of us, we've relegated following Jesus to sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning and doing an occasional Bible study. We are missing out on what it means to have the living God send his spirit to live inside of you and what it looks like and what it means. And so what better way to figure out what it means than to go to the words of Jesus, who's the one who told us the helper would come. And so we're going to be in John chapter 14. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. As we said last week, John's gospel is unique. When you open up your New Testament, you've got four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the gospels. They give an account of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
They are the synoptic gospels. They cover a period of about three to three and a half years in the life of Jesus. John was a little bit different. He doesn't tell, he doesn't write the same way they did. He wrote a little bit later on than they did. And in John's approach, he was very selective. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, I'm very selective in what I included in my gospel because if I tried to include everything, there's not enough books in the world to contain everything that Jesus said and did. And so we know, right, like John was very selective in what he included. So selective that John's gospel only covers 21 to 22 days in the life of Jesus. That's it. 21 to 22 days. So John's very selective because he wants his audience to know what I included is so important for you to understand. Within that 21 to 22 days, you've got John chapters 13 through 17 that hone in on one single night in the life of Jesus. Many people call this the farewell discourse. It's the night before Jesus dies on the cross. This is the last night where he's gathered with his uh, closest friends. And if you've ever been around somebody who knows that the end is coming, you know that they don't beat around the bush a lot. They don't spend a lot of time just kind of talking. They're very direct. They, they want to be very direct. They want to specifically say something. They want you to remember. They want you to uh, focus on something when they're not here. And so this is the same thing with Jesus. John was selective in what he included. And this last night where Jesus did a lot of talking, it's so important for us to understand what he wanted us to remember when he left. And so he gathers with his closest friends around the table in the upper room. And you see them all sitting, they're all zoned in. Jesus has created an environment where there's no distractions. He can just focus. He can speak to his friends. They're in that moment. They're hearing him. They don't fully understand him. Jesus will reveal that. You don't fully understand me. You don't even really know me yet, is what Jesus will say to them. But in the midst of that conversation, you notice they're all honed in. There's no cell phones distracting them in that meeting. There's nobody uh, having side conversations. They're They're just focused on what Jesus is saying to them. Nobody gets up and leaves except Judas. Judas gets up and he walks out so that he can go and betray Jesus. Do you see the connection between people that get up and walk out of meetings and Judas? So, (laughs) happy Mother's Day. That was free. So today at lunch, moms, when anyone gets up from your table, all you got to do is, where are you going, Judas? (laughs) Sit back down. It's Mother's Day. You better sit at this table. See, no distractions, though. Jesus had this great moment incredible moment with his people, telling them what he wanted them to understand. Then he begins to tell them, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to be going away, and where I'm going, you can't come with me, and you don't fully understand this, and they didn't because they, both Peter and Thomas, both very clearly express that they don't agree with this, and they don't don't like it, they're not comfortable with it, and Jesus responds with, I've been with you this long, and you still don't know me. You still don't fully understand what's going on. You don't understand me, why I came. And I'm thinking when I read that, hold on, Jesus, this is the group of guys that you're trusting to take the greatest message to the ends of the world, and you're telling me they don't even know you? And they're supposed to take this incredible message to the ends of the earth, this message of Jesus. And now Jesus, on the night before he died, you're dying tomorrow, and you're telling me they don't even know you. So where's the hope? And then Jesus begins to explain where the hope comes from. The hope of them coming to a better understanding of what they actually did experience but a hope for them to better get it so that they're fully prepared to bring this message. And Jesus begins to tell them this in John chapter 14. So we're going to start in verse 16. Jesus says this in the middle of his discussion with them. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he will come to dwell in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Skip down to verse 25. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So I want you to hear this while I am still here with you, he says. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all of the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus begins to explain, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send a helper to come to you. And as he describes his helper, it's important for you to understand the nature of the helper that he's describing here. You see, in Greek, uh, words are uh, assigned, nouns are assigned a gender. They're masculine, feminine, or they're neutral. See, the word for spirit is actually neutral in Greek. But Jesus, throughout his entire farewell discourse, will address the spirit as a he, continually giving it that, that, that feeling, that understanding that the spirit's not just some force that's out there that you tap into. It's not just kind of present as a force around you. He says, no, it's actually a person that lives in you. And so he per- personifies the spirit as a part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus does this. Now, the word that he uses for spirit here is very unique. It's paraclete in Greek. Everybody say paraclete. One, two, three. Paraclete. That was, that was the best you've ever done. Good job. Now, this is a noun, and the verb form of this is parakaleo. Okay, kaleo means to call in Greek. So to call out, to call to one, right? And para means to come alongside. And it's where we would add certain things in English language like paramedic, paralegal. Okay, same concept. And so what it means is to come alongside in order to support. That's what it means. Now, there's a tension with this word. It's a very unique word that Jesus uses here to describe the Holy Spirit. There's a tension here between calling somebody, which is a little bit more forceful, like calling out, saying, here's what you do, directing and leading, right? And then coming alongside someone to just support them and to be there with them. You have this tension. One author said it this way, that that tension represents a prophetic call and a priestly support. So prophetically, the Spirit is constantly telling you where you need to go and what you need to do and pointing you toward what the Father would have. And priestly, the Spirit comes alongside you and comforts you and gives you what you need in order to do so. So paraclete. The only other time. So Jesus is saying there's two advocates. You've got the Spirit who's coming. You've got this helper who's coming. And the word can be translated a helper, counselor, advocate. And, and so Jesus hones in on this and he says, this helper, this advocate is coming. So the natural question is, he called it another helper. So who's the first helper? Well, the only place, the only other place in your entire New Testament where this Greek word paraclete is used is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says this, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus is telling us, you have two advocates, two paracletes in your life. You have Jesus who's advocating, and you have the Spirit who's advocating. And so it's good to understand as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian in the world, how does this work? How does Jesus advocate, and how does the Spirit begin to advocate? They both have a responsibility and a job. They both fulfill what the Bible says they're going to fulfill in your life. What does it look like? What does it mean? Tim Keller says it this way. 
He says, Jesus advocates to God for us, and the Spirit advocates to us for us. And so Jesus advocates to the Father on our behalf. The Spirit advocates to us for us, for us, for our benefit. And so to better understand this, let's take that phrase, and we're going to break it into two sections. So first is this, Jesus advocates to God for us. Let me ask you this, what does an advocate do for you? Think about it. An advocate, somebody who represents you, if you think like defense attorney almost. It, but it's more than just representing you. It's, they have to learn you so well that they can almost become like you, right? They almost become a version of you as they represent you. Because look, if you stutter and mess up, right, in court, but your lawyer, your defense attorney is eloquent, how do you look? You look eloquent, right? If you're ignorant and not intelligent, but your lawyer is just completely brilliant, and we've seen this play out over and over again. How do you appear in court? You appear brilliant because your representative, your advocate is brilliant. In some cases, you might not even be required to speak or even to show up personally in court because your attorney appears or your advocate appears in your place as a substitute for you. So what do you look like in court? You look like whatever your advocate looks like. If they win, you win. If they lose, you lose. But, but with Jesus, it has to be more than this, guys. It has to be because we don't just need before a holy God who is just, who cannot sin, has to do everything perfectly, and his justice must be enacted for him to be true. You realize this. If you're going to trust God, he must be just. He must seek justice and execute justice, or he's not trustworthy. And so when you go before a just and holy God, you don't just need someone to represent you. You need someone to represent you who has a very strong case. They can come and make a case. You know this. When, when you're in court, the best way to win a court case is not to appeal to the mercy of the court. It's not. The best way to win a court case is to present a case that demands that you must be acquitted. Like, there's no other option. You have to be acquitted. And so, look, when I became a Christian at 17 years old, after I became a Christian, my thought process, I would always hear these phrases, Jesus is representing you to the Father, Rob, or Jesus is your advocate, Rob. Jesus goes before God on your behalf, Rob. And I always thought, well, what, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Right? Because if, if all, is Jesus just going before the Father? This is how I pictured it. Maybe you're like me and you picture it this way. That Jesus goes before God and he says, Father, I know Rob's got some sin struggles right now, but would you just give him another chance? Give him a second chance. Let, let, him, let him do this again. Let him try again. He's going he's gonna to get through this. Let him try again. And so I would have another chance and another chance and another chance. But you got to wonder, after how long do the chances run out? And it wasn't until I came to an understanding that's not what Jesus is doing when he advocates for us. He's not pleading with God to give you mercy, to give you a second chance. You see, God's mercy was displayed when he allowed Jesus to die on the cross for you. So he does not need to offer that mercy again. It's already been accomplished. When, God, when Jesus goes before the Father to advocate for you as a follower of Jesus... What he's advocating for is not God's mercy, but God's justice. Here's what I mean. It's as if Jesus is going to the Father and he's saying, Father, I know Rob's got sin and he's struggling yet again. He's fallen on his face yet again. He's messed up yet again. And God, I know that the penalty for sin is death. It has to be for you to be just. In order for you to be a just God, sin must be punished by death. So God, here are my scars and here's my blood. I've paid the penalty for that sin. 
And God, we know that if anybody were to be punished twice for the same sin, that wouldn't be just. And you're just. So accept the payment for that sin. Be just. And so God, Jesus is advocating to God for justice, not mercy, when he's advocating for you. Now, don't mistake that. Mercy was displayed when he allowed Jesus to die on the cross for you. It's not justice without mercy. It's mercy that led to God being able to be just, and now he's just with you because he looks at you and he sees Jesus. It's this beautiful picture that Paul paints in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us on our behalf so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? What it's saying is this. Jesus, the one who had no sin ever, when God looks at Jesus, he sees our sin because of his sacrifice. So he sees the sacrifice paid for sin. The one who had never sinned. Now, those of us who do sin, man, we've got a sin struggle consistently. Those of us who continue to struggle with sin because of Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees that sacrifice And so us, marred by sin, in Christ, when he's your advocate, when you are in Christ, God sees you as beautiful. God sees you as his child. God sees you as righteous, not because of what you've done, because what you've done deserves death, but because of what was done for you by Jesus. You see, when Jesus is our advocate, he's advocating for justice, which should give you confidence, friends. I'm confident that the God I serve is a God of justice. No other religion can claim that the justice of their God was satisfied by the sacrifice of their God. Only we can claim that. That God remains just while at the same time executing mercy. That's what makes Christianity beautiful and gives us our confidence that though I continue to have a sin struggle, that Jesus advocates for God's justice, which he also paid for, for me. But he says it's not just he that advocates, that he will leave and send another helper, same word, another advocate. He's going to send another one to advocate for us. And so the question becomes, how then does the Spirit advocate for us? And the Spirit advocates to us, for us. You remember we said that we're people that drift. We kind of drift away from God. And the Spirit, when he's alive in you, pushes you back towards God. He shines the light on Jesus. You see, all through John 13 through 17, if you spend time reading that later, you'll notice that Jesus continually says about the Spirit, the Spirit will teach you everything that I've already taught you. He's going to bring it back up in your memory. The Spirit will give you the ability to remember everything that I've told you and everything I want you to do. And so the Spirit's job in us is to remind us of Jesus. That's all the Holy Spirit ever wants to do in your life. He wants to point you to Jesus to give Jesus all of the glory and all of the honor. This is why when people consistently are talking about the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, or, or we're asking the Holy Spirit to come, and I'm thinking to myself, you're asking the Holy Spirit to come, but the Bible says he's already here. He's living in you. And when he comes to live in you, he's not jumping around house to house, right? He is God, eternal, can be all places at all times, and lives inside of you. So we don't need to ask him to come. He's already here, living inside of us. And the Bible says as he lives in you, he's just pointing you back to Jesus, You ever had that gap take place in your life? I have here recently. All cards on the table. I I just last night even was talking to my wife and I was just like, I gotta be done with some technology, with with social media in particular because it's nothing but a distraction for me. I I don't know what it's like for you and I'm not here to speak on your behalf, but for me, I felt a a gap. I drifted 
because I was so consumed with looking at what's going on in other people's lives and, and checking out what's going on in other churches and, and so attached to this that all of a sudden I wanted to, found myself desiring to learn more about God more so than I wanted to spend time with God. That's a problem. A problem that the Holy Spirit, as he pointed me back to the truth of the gospel, Jesus is advocating for you, Rob. And he was reminding my heart of my need to get back in line, in alignment with the truth of Jesus. And so I had to make some decisions to prevent the drift from happening again, decisions that I wouldn't have seen had the Spirit not shined its light on Jesus. Let me illustrate for you this way. When you come into uh, Washington, D.C., you see this. You see the Washington Monument. Now, you wouldn't see it from this angle because your plane would be higher up. But one of the things that you would notice when you're flying in at night into Washington, D.C., if anybody ever has, you can see the Washington Monument. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The, when, I, when I see that, whether an image or I've flown around D.C. and seen it, um, seen it at night, lit up, my first thought is not like, wow, look at those lights. The lights are great. That's not what you think. You think, wow, look at the Washington Monument. And you're not thinking of the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights that shine on and through the Washington Monument. You don't think about that. Oh, hundreds of thousands, of, they're wasting that light. How could they? That's not what you're thinking. You're just thinking, man, that's beautiful. Just shining a light. The lights are there. They're a reality, but they're just shining onto the Washington Monument. So the Washington Monument's what's seen and celebrated. This is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. J.I. Packer says the Holy Spirit's like a floodlight in your heart. And the whole purpose of the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to completely shine the light on Jesus. All he wants you to do is your heart to constantly see Jesus. That on your worst day, the Holy Spirit's biggest role is to get you back to the truth of what Jesus has done for you. On your best day, the Holy Spirit's job is to shine the light on Jesus so that you know where to aim your gratitude. In your most tragic and heartbreaking moment, the Holy Spirit's comfort is to not just make you feel better, but to point you to the truth of the gospel. Because it's not about a feeling or an emotion. It's about a truth. Sure, feelings and emotions follow afterwards, but it's grounded in the truth that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved to die, and then he defeated it for you, and he advocates day in and day out before the Father on your behalf. And God is a God of justice who executes his justice, but in doing so, you just receive mercy. That is the good news of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, day in and day out, just wants to shine that light on your heart so that you're constantly just coming back. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all the Holy Spirit's concerned with. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Just wants to highlight and elevate Jesus in your heart and in your life to prevent you from drifting so that you can remain present with your Heavenly Father and He can continue to work on shaping you and molding you into who He needs you to be in order to do what He needs you to do. So how do we do this? What does it kind of look like in our life? What are some of the things that He does and how does this kind of play out for us. I'm just going to give you two things. There's a lot. I'm going to give you two that I think would be uh, comforting to you, encouraging to you, something you can take with you when you leave here. The first thing is this, the role, how the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. One of the primary ways is this, he advocates, comforts, and counsels you. Friends, when you walk out of this place, do you realize that you have a very real enemy who's coming for you? He wants to discourage you, distract you, and destroy you. He wants to crush your spirit. He wants to cause you to drift. He wants to help you drift as far from Jesus as you can possibly get. That's his goal. That's all he wants to do. And if you're not paying attention to what the Spirit is doing in your heart, and how do you do that? You got to give the Holy Spirit something to work with, something he can rise up again in your heart. And so you need to spend time in the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit in those tough moments will bring forth the truth of Scripture to point you to the truth of the gospel. 
In Matthew chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus, if you read in your Bible. And in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to John and says, you have to baptize me. Oh, I don't want to. You have to. And Jesus wins. He always wins. And so John's going to baptize Jesus. And they're in the water. And he lowers him into the water and he raises him up and the heavens open up and the spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. And God says this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My question is, what is it about Jesus that pleased God in that moment? It wasn't his miracles because he hadn't performed any yet. It wasn't his teaching because he hadn't started teaching or preaching yet. What pleased God in that moment was his sonship. This is my child. This is one I love and I care for. And it's fascinating that immediately after that is declared over Jesus and he begins his ministry, the first thing that happens in Matthew 4 is he goes into the wilderness to be, or into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And Satan arrives on the scene after Jesus has had this incredible moment connecting with the presence of, of his heavenly father and Satan's first words are what? If you are the son. Wait a second. Like 12 lines ago, God just said, you are my beloved child. And now Satan's first temptation is to get Jesus to question his identity. Because he knows if he can get him away from the truth of his identity, he can distract him enough to get him away from his mission. And that was his goal. And in chapter 4, Jesus combats that with the word of God. The Holy Spirit, alive in Jesus, brings about the word of truth. And he combats the lies of the enemy with the truth of Scripture. And he says, and when, when Satan comes and says, if you're the son of God, turn that rock into bread and eat. And he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And everything Satan throws at him, he's got something to come back. It's the Spirit bringing that out. And the Bible says the same thing's true of you. When the enemy comes and tells you you're not good enough, smart enough, successful enough, you haven't accomplished enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not strong enough, you're not a good enough dad, a good enough mom, a good enough wife, a good enough husband, a good enough son, a good enough employee. When the enemy comes and he just whispers those things in your ear, what are you going to do in that moment? Have you given the Holy Spirit something to work with so he can say, don't listen to those lies? Where he can flash that floodlight in your heart to say, no, 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 Jesus is advocating for you. You're right, you're not good enough, but he's good enough in you. You're right, you're not strong enough, but he's strong enough in you and through you, and he wants to work in your life to accomplish great things. Will you give the Holy Spirit something to work with so he can advocate and counsel and comfort you in your darkest, lowest moments with the truth of God's word? Because that's what he wants to do. Shine a light on Jesus in your heart and in your life. The second way he does that is he leads you. The Holy Spirit leads you. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells us one of the ways the Spirit will lead us. Verses 8 and 9. He says, the Holy Spirit will lead you by bringing to your attention the sin struggle that you have. He's going to bring it out. And so the fear, when we pause enough, one of the fears, one of the reasons people stay so distracted and busy and, and they're so consumed with everything they have to get done and they love technology because it just gets your mind off of what the Spirit wants to do in your heart. And Jesus says, the Spirit will bring about the sin struggles that you have. And you're going to have to deal with those sin struggles. He's going to give you an advocate is going to help you overcome those sins. He's going to give you a church to come alongside you and walk with you. But that's what happens because behind every sin is a level of unbelief. Every decision we make that's sinful, we're actually not believing the truth about the gospel. And every sin that we get caught up in, we start to drift away from the truth of the gospel and the Spirit wants us to combat our unbelief with the truth. So he comes back and then you're led to repentance where you say, Father, I'm sorry, help me in my unbelief. And he does so with his word. So here's my challenge. I'm like, how do you bring this thing home? And it's kind of simple this week, guys. Not emotional, not 
It's just real simple, and I hope the Holy Spirit convicts you. And if he does, I, I say this with all sincerity, let him work. Let him work, work through the difficulty because on the other side is joy. Work through the pain because on the other side is joy. Here's my challenge to you. Disconnect this week. Schedule time. Practice being present with God so the Holy Spirit can work on your heart. Now, I say practice because it doesn't always come easy, especially in our generation. But I encourage you, set aside time to focus on the Father. That's it. Start small. Come back to this truth of what Jesus is doing for you and the Spirit wants to do in your heart. Shine the light on Jesus. It's not always easy. You're going to pause and you're going to stop and you're going to want to get distracted, so start small and let it build from there and allow the Holy Spirit to work on your heart because he wants to do powerful things in your life. Will you let him do that this week? Let's pray.